Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship, where we get to talk horses. We're your hosts. I'm John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. Thanks for listening and sharing our horsemanship journey. On today's show, we're going to rerun an interview I did with Janet Barrett, author of the book, They Called Her Reckless. Because... Because we're in Durango, Colorado right now at the Best Horse Practices Summit. Probably as you're listening to this, I am conducting more interviews to get you more great horsemanship advice that we can play on future shows. You're good at that. (laughs) Thank you. Before we get to Janet, we want to tell you a little bit about a ride that we took with the Backcountry Horsemen of Antelope Valley. It was the second biggest group of horses I had ever ridden with. It was it was right about 50 horses and riders, and two different people were ponying. So it was a really good-sized group, which always makes for an interesting outing. And we had a great trail boss, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Frisbee, who led the group out Right after we got out of the uh, the trailer area, he took us uphill. So a lot of horses had to breathe really hard to make it up that hill, and that kind of took a little bit of the wind out of them and settled, settled a lot of horses down. It was a lot of climbing, especially for our two horses from Bakersfield. <laughs> it, was a, it was a pretty good ride. We, we rode for two and a half hours. Did you get the mileage on that, Renee? I did. It was 5.4 miles and a lot of it uphill. I never really felt us going downhill. Not till that very end uh, part. Yeah, it just yeah, seemed like we just like, kept going up and up. A lot more up. And uh, we stopped at the top. It was really a very nice view of the Palmdale area. I think so, yes. It was, I mean, it was a really nice view, and I think it was Palmdale. It's very pretty. Nice breeze. Great day. There were a number of uh, mountain bikers sharing the trail with us, which was which kind of made it interesting. Everybody was very well behaved. These horses really seemed to settle in. For a group of 50 horses, you would think that maybe there would there would be more than just a couple that were acting up. Well, you know, there were one or two. But for the most part, everybody behaved very nicely. No one came off their horse, which they did, that's yeah. always a good thing of a, on a trail ride. It's a great thing, yep. And if you get a chance to ride with a big group, it's really an interesting experience, and I would encourage you to do that. It's fun. You move in and out. Your your position changes. The people that you're riding nearby to changes. So you get to have a lot of different fun conversations. And it's a good experience for your horse. He has to get used to different horses around him. You know, that some horses may flick their tail at him or you have to worry about not only the uh, the trail ahead and whether you're walking over deadfall but you have to worry where the other horses are at mm-hmm. yeah we had a couple of red ribbons in the group so we're not really used to having to watch out for horses that kick but when you're in a big group there's there's usually going to be a, a couple and one of my plans for a future show is to have somebody on to talk about the proper etiquette in riding in a large group like that so maybe we'll get some more information for you in the future but right now let's get to janet barrett and have her tell you the story of a little Korean juju pony, only 11 hands tall, by the name of Reckless, who performed courageously in the Korean War. And now, Janet Barrett on the Woe Podcast. Welcome to the show, Janet. Well, thank you. Your book is about a Marine, a very unique Marine, who was in the Korean War. Tell us a little bit about your book and about this special Marine. I get a lot of author talk. 
And I usually open up by saying that I've got a good war story and it's about a group of Marines, as you've just said. And then I look at the audience and I say, and the only thing was one of them had four legs. <laughs> and then I get a laugh. But <laughs> indeed, that's true because she was a little Jeju pony. The Jeju pony was and is the uh, indigenous breed of Korea, their native breed. And in the fall of 1952, uh, some Marines acquired her. The, the background of this is that the, the Korean War changed very dramatically uh, about a third of the way through. Um, as soon as the peace talks started, it became a holding action. And they, the forces moved up north, and they kind of um, positioned themselves on either side of the border between North and South Korea. Um, and it became trench warfare. And at that point, the topography of Korea became really important in that Korea is very mountainous. And when, it, when the mountains um, subside into hills, those hills are pretty impressive. And the guys had to drag all their equipment. Most of the fighting now was from the ridgelines, and they had to drag their equipment uphill. And one of the weapons that really found its calling in Korea was the 75-millimeter recoilless rifle. It was about 115 pounds. I shouldn't say about it. It was 115 pounds. And so this was posi positioned on the ridgelines. And the ammunition it used was a heavy shell. And that became the real problem. The shell went from 20 to 23 pounds. It was about 30 inches long. And the guys had to drag these things uphill. And so a commander, a, um, a smart-thinking commander who was a horseman, and, and all of your audience will understand, horse people tend to think horse at some point, right? It always enters right. the equation. He thought maybe a horse would help because this was just a back-breaking thing. I mean, these guys are dragging themselves up the hills with these shells and their own equipment, but then they have to keep going down for more and more and more as long as the guns were firing, whether it was a skirmish or a, a planned operation or maybe an open-ended battle. And so they went down to Seoul and they found this little pony and they brought her to camp and she became reckless very quickly, reckless because the recoilless rifle was known as the reckless uh -huh. rifle. And it was fired by, in the jargon of the day, the reckless rifle boys. And so that was an easy, an easy stretch to, to name her reckless. They gave her rank. She became private first class. And... I like to think this, this, this story is, is very complex, and it's a story of forces that come together. I mean, the thing I knew the first time I heard about her was that it wasn't just a horse story. It had to do with the connection, you know, that powerful human-horse connection. Boy, when it works, it's, it's something to behold. And it had to do with forces that all came together. You know that book? The, the Perfect Storm, which is a, it's a wonderful book of an awful, awful story. But if you could put a, a positive spin on that, you had a group of Marines that needed help. They were the Marines of the Recoilless Rifle Platoon 5th Regiment, and they had this ammunition that they needed to get uphill. So they, they had a problem, and they needed something. Along came this horse that they acquired. Now, you can make your judgments about, about a horse when you first first meet up with it. I mean, we all have our ways of saying that one's going to be good for this and that reason. But you don't really know until, you know, until they're doing what you need them to do. And as it turned out, she came with, I think, the best of what was needed in this situation. And then you had a group of guys that for a lot of different reasons, and these were the, the, the recruits, the younger guys, the ones that go running off to every war, you know, that can't wait to get there, and then they get to war, and they say, right. uh-oh, 
for a lot of reasons, they were ready to embrace her. And they both literally and figuratively, they bonded. And so you had this eventually, and, and it didn't take very long, this tight unit of the guys in this horse. And, and it was something. And they, and they were able to do, as they trained her, more than either side could have accomplished. It wasn't it Lieutenant Peterson who decided that he wanted to get the horse, and it was more, yes. I think the way I read it in the book, it was more like, hey, I'm going to do this to help my man, and this is just another piece of equipment, and we're going to give it a, we're going to give it a go, but it's mainly to help the, the men in my company. Absolutely, absolutely. She was brought on for a job, and that's something that I always stress when I talk to them, because, I mean, the story that, that grew out of it was fantastic, and it had so many more repercussions. But yes, I mean, he he was a horseman. He saw his guys breaking their backs, lugging this, 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 this ammunition. And the Marines could, only, could really only carry one shell at a time. How many did Reckless carry? She carried four. Now, most of the Marines, actually, did, just to correct that, could carry two. But that was backbreaking. I mean, they did carry two. I think it was kind of expected of them. They would put, you know, they would, they have their own knapsack or, or whatever pack on their back with, I'm told, about 60 pounds of, you know, change of clothes and food and water and a flashlight and small arms and small arms ammunition and first aid equipment, all of that on their back. And then they would, and then they would position a shell on either shoulder. But the, yeah, that's another, you know, 40 to 50 pounds. And she carried... And, and, you had, and they had to climb, they had to get to the top of the hill because the rifle was a line of sight rifle. Exactly. Exactly. This is this is a daytime weapon. You're exactly right. It was positioned on the ridge line. The beauty of this this weapon is that it was deadly accurate at long range, statistically up to 4 miles. Although not not fired that far as far as I know, perhaps some places, but you know, but across no man's land to, you know, to an enemy bunker over there, right. yonder, <laughs> that you couldn't get to with, you know, marine, marine, uh, with, uh, with planes or or mortars or some other means, and they would get the the reckless rifle boys up there to set up that weapon, that rifle, and they could take them out. Yeah, yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, they, she was. I've never heard it say quite that way, but yeah. I mean, she was, she was, as it started out, another piece of equipment. Except that I think Patterson, as a horseman, and Joe Latham, who was his gunny sergeant, and also also a horseman, a different type. He was a southern farm boy, so he knew how to work with them. They understood right away that to make this work, um, they were going to create a unit. They were going to get those guys to bond to her, and um, they had plans. They had they had ideas in their head. They had to see if it would work. And they, they took yeah. this little mare off of... Uh, was it a Korean racetrack? Well, it was the remnants of one. Um, there are different stories about about some of the the the, the prequel to to the, to the story. Shall we say? I mean, a book had come out right after the war that that told the story with, I think, some things that really didn't hold water. Um, what I think happened was, you're absolutely right. Um, they found her at what had been the old Seoul racetrack the official racetrack, which had been destroyed. By the time they acquired Reckless, Seoul had changed hands four times in the war. Um, it had been taken over by the North Koreans immediately when the war began in the end of June 1950, and then we took it back 
uh, about middle of September, and then they took it back the following January, and then we finally took Seoul back in the spring of 1951, and at that point it stayed. It was a destroyed city. Um, and the racetrack had been used as a supply depot by the North Koreans. They had um, they had re- destroyed all the buildings, and the horses were gone. You have to figure they either were taken north as pack horses, or they were slaughtered. I mean, you know, they weren't there, and you're not going to have horses around a, a supply depot. But by the time Pedersen went looking for her, and now this jumps ahead to the fall of 1952, the 8th Army had taken over that location and turned it into an airfield. So he had all this commotion, which he apparently was used to, and I think that was good. Around the periphery were still horsemen, because there had been an, an attempt in the early fall of 1950. At that point, we thought the war was going to be over very fast. I mean, this was just going to be, oh, our boys would be home for Christmas. This was just a right. little flare-up. And the Korean racing, racing Authority thought that racing could be started again. And so they brought another shipment of ponies up from the south. That's what they raced at the time. And the racetrack owned their horses, two things to just kind of file away. Um, and I think she was part of that shipment that came up. And then in the fog of war, who knows what happened? I mean, you know. Do you think you Pedersen had uh, many horses to choose from? Well, I don't know. I think he had some. But I think those are the things we really don't know. You know, there were there were some horses around the periphery. Just um, race trackers are kind of a closed community. You know, they hang together, and they're I'm sure these guys, whoever they were, and however many horses were waiting for that better day when racing would start again. You know, um, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. But I can't I can't answer that. I mean, I would just say that. I there think were he some. wisely chose a um, mare instead. I mean, race horses are, are yeah. quite often stallions, so. It was great that he chose a mare. They have probably a little bit more of a thinking side of their brain to kind of figure out what was what was good and what was... I think you're right. I think you're right. And she was young. She was three years old, as far as we know. And so she'd always been, you know, until she had come up north to this, this quasi-racetrack situation, shall we say, racetrackers around an airfield. Um, she was with a herd. You know, uh, either on Jeju Island, where she—that's that's the, that's the uh, ancestral home of the Jeju—or maybe in the south of the mainland. I mean, we don't know that either. But um, yeah, so she was conditioned to, you know, being listening, listening to others. So eventually, she made the Marines her herd. But yes, I think you're right. A mayor is a mayor is more sensitive. They had to get her used to this rifle. I mean, she was going to be bringing rounds up while this rifle was fighting. Uh, that was a pretty loud, mm-hmm. huge, huge blast. Well, and I think that was what was one of the fascinating things about this story is that, I mean, we all know that you can habituate a horse to, to all sorts of scary, you know, scary things. And as soon as they find out that it's not going to harm them, they're okay with that, and they file it away. I mean, any of us that have gone to shows, whether whether you're going through a gate, you know, in, in a western show with a big bag of beer cans. You know that you have to get through is right, that one of yes. the obstacles, or or you're riding English and you're going over jumps. You do a lot of homework at your home stable, right? You know, I mean, you 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 may land on the ground a couple of times, and meanwhile, you get them conditioned to the fact that that flapping bunting isn't going to harm them, and those spinning pinwheels, and oh, you know, all that stuff. So that by the time you get to a show, 
hopefully they say, oh, yeah, fine, that's okay, and, and you go around the course or whatever you have to do, and <laughs> and you don't have those sorts of problems. But, you know, in, in, in a war zone, <clears throat> you can't have that sort of sterile atmosphere where everything is stopped other than this one thing you right. want to be conditioned to. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, you can't go up on the ridge and say, everyone stop the I war, please. You know? my horse. <laughs> Right, here comes Reckless. And and so, yeah, I mean, and this recoilless rifle had a heck of a blast. Uh, and also a back blast, and she had to be trained to stay away from that because if you got caught in that cone of of, um, of backfire, um, you could be injured or killed. I mean, that was a nasty a nasty zone to, to get near. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just so for her to... to so I, I believe that, that training her to trust... And to and to believe that these guys were her herd, and if they weren't going to run, she wasn't going to run. Was a whole was part of it. And then Joe Latham. I'm sorry. I'm going to just add one thing. I I had the the great good luck to talk to Joe Latham while he was still around, and he said to me, um, and he had, as I say, he had been uh, he'd been a, a a farm boy. He had worked an aunt and uncle's farm in the south somewhere. So you know he knew about getting a horse to do what it might not always want to do. And he said to me, if you're good to them, they will do anything you want. And I think that that just governed That's everything he did with her. And and we've all yeah. you know, read stories about war horses and horses in combat, and many of them have fared, mm-hmm. you know, well, they've had different results, but many of them, there's great stories told about them. But one of the things that I found amazing about Reckless was she had to work independently. Quite often, she was making Mm -hmm. the runs up and Mm -hmm. down those hills from the ammo supply to the recoilless rifle. She was making those trips on her own. Yes. I mean, I I find, I think that is really the the distinguishing thing about her. Um, And I'm reluctant to say she's unique because that's a very powerful word, at least for a writer. And horses have been in combat for many thousands of years. So did that ever happen before? Well, we don't know. Would it happen again? It could because she was not, you know, it wasn't wasn't a freak. It wasn't an anomaly. It it was um, that, yes, they trained her to go. um, They would walk her a couple of times. Uh, just to show her the route, and then she would go by herself from that ammo dump, which was positioned as close as could be to the front line and as far back as necessary for safety. So you can imagine that because the enemy would overfire the lines and you would have shrapnel falling behind, and obviously you didn't want anything landing where right. the ammunition was. Um, and she would make that 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 run by herself and a lot of that was across open area because you know picture this um this hilly hilly territory well between the hills are the valleys and that was where the rice paddies were that are now you know stinking and boggy and ruined and there are berms that go go across them and around them. Um, they're mined because Korea was all through the war they never got all those mines uh diffused. Uh, both sides had mined the country pr- pretty well early on, and then and had she hit a mine, of oh, course, that would have been the end of that. She would run across these berms. No one ever knows of her missing a step. And then she would go up the hills, and as you say, it was all on her own. And then she'd get up to the top. Someone would, 
you know, probably be, be waiting for her. But she also had been trained, you know, not to, as I say, not to get close to that back blast because maybe at that moment everyone's mind was, or everyone's attention was elsewhere. They would unload her. The, the photographs that exist of her with shells on her back always mm-hmm. show four. Most of the guys told me that she carried four. Some of them said six. You know, there's a certain amount of memoir right. in this. I mean, you have to kind of balance what people say. My my belief is that she carried four uh, most of the time and six when they really had to push it a little. And who knows, maybe there were times they pushed it a little more. But, you know, they were also trying to save her in terms of her 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 physical being because they were using right. her a lot, hour upon hour upon hour. I had some. I heard some very funny comments. Oh, and, and and of course, when she came up to the ridge line and they unloaded her, and there was a little treat and a slap on the rump, and off she went. And remember this idea about the herd. Part of her herd was up on the ridge. Part of her herd, in her mind, was back there at the ammo dump. So she was working within that herd. Right. You know, and the herd is a very powerful thing. I mean, it's it's a hierarchy. Uh, you would know this, mm-hmm. of course, as a horseman in your audience. It's a hierarchy. Uh, the youngster listens to the, you know, the senior members, right. and those would all be the guys. And I'm sure that Latham, in his way, might have been the the lead mayor. Who want to say that? But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have an older mare that leaves leaves the mm-hmm. herd when they have to run, and in this case, no one ran, so she stayed. But she went. But I, I was about to say there were some very funny. One guy told me he said it's just as well that they got her to the point where she could go alone because she was so fast that you know you couldn't keep up with her, and especially when you came to the bottom of a hill. I mean, can you imagine hanging on to your 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 lead as your horse is you know right. running up a hill? And you're and, trying to carry. It. Yeah, even a small pony. And you probably, if you were making that trip, you had a a shell or two you were trying to carry as well. Yeah, yeah, you know. So, so she was. Yeah, she was brilliant, and they were able initially when they first got her to the point um, where she went out with the recoilless rifle platoon, and that was early, early in 1953. By then, she really was a part of the part of the platoon where they went, she went. And I think, you know, there was a period at which they would lead her on every every trip. But then they just, you know, they decided to push the envelope and see uh, if they couldn't get her to go alone. And yeah, it worked. And as you say, there are, I mean, historically, there are, there are, were brilliant, brilliant war horses. And I even mention a number of them in the book. And the point I, I make is that, um, None of them went it alone, as you say. They all had riders on their back. They were all, so they were used in a different way. They withstood battle. They withstood noise and everything else, but they always had that rider to tell them. Uh, What made it more amazing with Reckless is that the recoilless rifle would fire, I don't know, half a dozen rounds or so, and then have to move its position because it would soon be mm-hmm. under fire itself. So she she had to kind of figure out where, exactly. the, where the boys went. I don't know how far they moved, but she had to kind of keep track of them as well. Well, I think so, you know, and, and some and, and how or whether they at that point sent her down another part of the of the hill. But yes, I mean, you're exactly right. You know, by the time they'd fire three or four or five rounds and by that time the enemy could figure out because there was this, this big forward blast. They could figure out where they were, and also that the exhaust coming out the back, the the rear blast was white, 
So that, that smoke fire fanned out all over the ridge line. And then, yeah, the enemy said, aha, they're there. And they started firing. And then, as you say, the recoilless rifle guys, they picked up the, the weapon. If, Re- if Reckless was up there on the ridge at the time, they grabbed her, and they all just went running up the ridge. And then the guys that remained, the Mortarmen, they, they, <laughs> it was a real love-hate relationship. I mean, this recoilless rifle was was tailor-made for Korea, and, and everyone knew it. And it did what the other others couldn't do, and it was very necessary but the guys hated it too, because the others, the mortarmen and the riflemen and stuff, because they remained on the ridge in that position, and they're and they're uh, now taking incoming, they're now getting fired on. The recoilless rifle guys gone. are gone running up the ridge. They're gone. These guys are jumping <laughs> into the trenches. <laughs> As one of them said, he said we would just be yelling at them, you know, swearing at them. But of course, as I say, at the same time, it was. Uh, what you. And you tell a, a, a fantastic and exciting story about the uh, the battle for the Nevada cities, which is the names of the hills in mm-hmm. Korea. We won't go into that because I think that's really the the reader really should kind of take the story that you tell. But tell us a little bit about how you came about to write this book. I mean, what where did you learn first about Reckless, and and what inspired you to want to to take on the challenge of telling her story? You know, it was just, it was just luck, I, I should say. At the time, and this goes back to 1992, um, somebody, someone is going to say, boy, she's a slow writer, but, you know, <laughs> a lot of other things intervened. I was doing some freelance work with Thoroughbred Records, and I was um, hanging out at, some, at the New York racetracks. Uh, not a bad assignment, I promise you. Um, and I got to know uh, a guy there, a real racetracker, uh, named Charlie Murphy. He was a former Marine. He was a mutual clerk and uh, um, wrote for Chicago Scratch Sheet. sheet. And um, I've since found out in talking to his widow that he was something of a writer himself. And he used to hang around the press box a lot and just kind of, you know, mosey around and see what you were doing and you were doing and so forth and so on. And they say, well, you got to be friendly. And he came up to me one day and he said, I got a story for you. And he started telling me about her. And I have to tell you, John, I still remember that. It was kind of a, you know, an oh, wow moment because it just, it just grabbed me. And at the same time, I knew as, even as Charlie was telling me, I said, this is, this is, this is, this is a bigger story than just a horse story. I, I knew it right away that it was, it had to do with those guys and her together. And, um, I just, I just knew. I knew from then that I would somehow, someday write it. I started doing a little research then, and I, I was so green to all of this. I mean, I have no military background. I said to him, "Well, how am I going to find these guys?" And he said, "Well, you'll put a notice in, in uh, Leatherneck." And of course, and I was, "What's that?" Can you imagine? So that's where I, <laughs> that's where I started. Um, but they responded, and over the years, I mean, I did some work then, as I say, and then. I've always been a working writer, um, a writer for hire. So, you know, the assignments come in and they've got a check attached to them and those are the ones you do. So it took me a long time to to really clear the decks and get back to it. And I have to thank a husband, my husband, who finally just said, you know, you've got to do this. We'll manage. You've got to do this. Then I started back and I started again uh, putting out some, some feelers through the marine magazines. And these guys came out of the woodwork. And what what I've realized 
as I researched the Korean War, and there's a lot of history in the book too, is that it was a war that that um, that really in no way gave them any any um, credit afterwards. I mean, I, that was awkward to say it that way, but right. it really is the forgotten war. And they, these guys came home from the war, and nobody gave them a tumble, just kind of like, oh, hi, you know, what do you think? We just right. paid at the house, that sort of thing. And it really was an awful, awful war as, I mean, what war is it? And over the years, they buried it, and they told me that they just, they, you know, they didn't tell their families, they just, just, Put it, put it away. But this horse was their good story for this small group, for this recoilless rifle platoon, fifth regiment. She was a happy story, and they could. And she came. She kind of bubbled to the surface for a lot of them, and they just they they gave me so much time. I mean, incredible, incredible generosity of memory and and uh, explanations and everything else. And you got to interview quite a few Marines in the telling of this story. I I actually did interviews, you know, in-depth interviews with more than 60 of them. I have over 100 hours on tape. And uh, they were just phenomenal. I mean, they they were so generous. They love this horse like you today. Today, they they love her still. The guys that knew her in Korea, the guys that knew her at Pendleton, and even Marines that, you know, since then love her on behalf of what she did for the Marines back then. And... um, I mean, I had guys choke up on the phone, you know, they just, um, and she was, she was a ranking Marine. I mean, I, I said a while ago, they, they gave her rank initially, private first class. Uh, she made corporal the following January. If I'm talking to a bunch of Marines, they start to laugh. Someone will always pipe up and say, well, that was a lot faster than me, you know. <laughs> she deserved it. And then, and then she, she was, she, huh? Right. Yeah, four months, right? <laughs> Fast track, um, and then I have to say, well, she waited a little longer for sergeant, but but she was promoted to sergeant before she left Korea, and then a fi- finally staff sergeant. And that's that's the that's the thing that I um, loved about this story. Uh, in addition to all the, her heroic events, the calming effect that she had in the arena of, of, amongst the other soldiers. I mean, she was always there to you know, someone could put her hand on her. She would. She would come up to just about anybody. Yeah. Maybe it was because she was looking for food, maybe not. But she would, she had this this very comforting effect <laughs> in a very tense situation, and that the guys treated her like she was an actual human marine. I mean, she was expected to do yeah. pretty much everything. Yes, you 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 just you hit it you hit it on the head. That's absolutely true. Um, I had a, another horseman say to me recently that horses really are psychologists, and I had never thought about it that way. But I think there's a lot to that because, yes, I mean she was you know I mean she was in combat you know their absolute tough and steady partner. Okay, we that part we get and we you know we can't in, in no way diminish that. But yes, yeah, she was a soft place for them to land. I mean she was. She was a, a, you know, a neck to rub and a head to nuzzle, and, you know, she she uh, slept in their their tents at night when she felt like it. And she was I've never I haven't said by the way she was a little pony. I think we would be generous to say medium small. She was oh, wow. eleven She's hands tiny. one inch. Yes, little. Yes, <laughs> but but consider on the battlefield that's a big target. Right. You wouldn't want anything bigger if they if they were going to make a run to the front line. 
you know, and Patterson knew what he was looking for, and he knew that really it was the Jeju Pony that was the equine of Korea at that point, you know. But then to get back to what you said, she was, she was a friend. She was, she was comfort. She loved, she loved anything marine. She loved all marine food. She loved mess hall chow. She, she thought it was her due to share the sea. She loved cigarettes. You know, I mean, she, uh, she loved cigarettes. She liked it if you would open the pack, but she loved cigarettes. She loved beer. Um, the guys got two cases a month. That was their ration because the water was so bad. Goble beer from Detroit. And um, she thought, you know, that, that that really should be shared. Absolutely. You know, and she was, I mean, that's the thing. She, she was, to me, she was such a wonderfully complex character. I mean, she was lamb chop. Um, there are pictures of her with her eyes closed, swooning when she's getting yeah. a hug from a guy. You know, oh, you know, peaches and cream. And she could be a little brat. I mean, she wasn't beyond a kick or a, or a nip, you know. Very demanding. I mean, she wanted that beer. She wanted that beer. And, and one guy told me about being sound asleep on a Sunday afternoon and being awakened by a searing <laughs> pain in his arm. Right. And we've all been bitten, right? It's no fun. <laughs> Brings tears to no fun. Brings tears to your eyes. And so, you know, very demanding, very was she was she funny? Well she certainly understood that certain things she did made the guys laugh, right? So there was that side of her. Very much a maverick, which is something the Marines, I think, enjoy about themselves. She knew when to be absolutely on the mark and let her perfect, whether it was in formation or on the battlefield where, where there was right. no, no messing around, right? And other times, by golly, you know, she she grabbed a guy's undershirt and ran around the camp, you know, and did just whatever. I mean, just she also, she thought that she should, her place was really in the center, so if you were hanging out, a bunch of you, you know, having a smoke maybe before dinner, and she was in the area, she'd come and join part the group. Of one of the guys. Yeah, I mean, she was one. And, and you're right, they, you know, she was to them a Marine, and they have said that to me time and time again. They almost think, I mean, sometimes the guys would almost want to say, I mean, for heaven's sakes, don't you get it? She was a Marine, Semper Fi, she was a Marine. They cut her no quarter. They used her as hard as they used themselves. And they protected her with their lives. There are stories of them putting flak jackets on her. Um, yes. And if it's on her, it's not on she- you. So, you know. But like you mentioned that battle, and we won't talk about it except to say uh, she came out of that looking. She was decorated as as for that. Did. She was wounded. She was decorated. She, had, she was wounded twice and wears two pur- wore two purple hearts. And all the other medals and citations and commendations that, Every member of the recoilless rifle platoon wore. Also, she wore the fourragere that the fifth regiment wore, which is the rope that goes around the and one of the shoulder. the greatest tributes Courtesy is how they the, treated her after the war was ended. You know, she was a Korean horse, yeah. but they managed to bring her back to the United States. They did indeed. <laughs> I mean, and there was a little, that was a little tough, you know, they, there was always an assumption, well, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, she'll come to the States with us. Um, and then when they, they went for it, um, it wasn't going to be so easy. She wasn't military issue. She wasn't American. She wasn't even owned by the Corps because Pedersen, when he went to buy her, used mm-hmm. his own money, Lieutenant Pedersen, which, you know, at the time was probably a very smart decision rather than, Trying to get exactly. fund requisitions from the, from the military. 
Yeah. Then, you know, Washington is saying, no, no, we're really sorry, but you can't use government funds to bring her home. But then by that time, she'd been picking up some press. People were beginning to, she'd been written about in Stars and Stripes, and there was an article in Saturday Evening Post, and um, someone from a, a freighter line stepped up and said, if you get her to Yokohama, we'll bring her in deadhead San Francisco. And so then the, then the she also had a few uh, high-ranking friends by that point, I think, too. She did. She did. Well, she had been promoted to um, sergeant by the top Marine in Korea, and that was the commander of the 1st Division, General Randolph McCall Pate. And he really did think she was something. He had seen her interface with his men, and he knew what she was all about and what she had done for them. And yes, then he, he rotated out of Korea to Washington, where he was by the time she was coming home, or I, I, right. not home, home was Korea, not home, coming to the States. Uh, she, he was now the uh, assistant commandant, and he was in Washington. And it's my belief, because the paper trail dries up, the early letter to Washington, there was suddenly it just everything goes silent. And frankly, I think in Washington, he or his... Uh, his um, assistant, somebody just said, get her out of there. Nobody knows. Everyone looked the other way. Off she goes. Because she disappeared from camp. They, had, they actually had a, a rotation ceremony for her midway through a football game. But then she, she was around a few more days, and somebody told me that he looked up one day, and she's gone. And he said to a buddy, where did Reckless go? And they said, oh, they trucked her down to Kimpo, which was the big airfield uh, west of Seoul. Still there, changed its name, but still there. They trucked her down there, and I think they just put her on a flying boxcar, and off she went, landed her in Yokohama, put her in a loading. And also, the, the freighter had been in for 24 hours. They had built her, the Marines went on board, they built her a, a cabin on deck wow. behind the wheelhouse. And so, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, this was, this was reckless. Yes. Reckless. I mean, this was the, the 5th Marines' war horse. Um, and she meant, she meant it's, a lot. It's just it. unique in she the really sense did. that I think there were a lot of, I think I remember reading a story or hearing about a story of dogs that were used in World War II and, and in the service. And those dogs weren't brought back home. They, they were, you know, from what I understand, they were left behind. Yeah. And Reckless was so special yeah. Yeah. that they, they not only brought her to yeah. uh, Camp Pendleton, but it almost sounded, as you describe it in the book, that she was almost, she was still a Marine, but she was also a therapy animal for a lot of the soldiers that were struggling with the different issues that they might have had in the war. I think I think that's probably true. It's just that, you know, we didn't talk about those things the way we do today. But yes, I think, I mean, one guy said to me, he said, you know, she would she would walk across, um, you know, an open space to you, and she'd kind of poke at you with her nose and rub up against you. And for a couple of minutes, you'd stand there and you'd pet her. And he said, in that time, brief as it was, all the grayness and ugliness of Korea and where you were and what was going okay. on just melted away. And so for just that space, and so she was able to do that. And, you know, make a guy laugh and, you know, yes, bum some of his, you know, his cigarettes and his beer and, and some of his sea rations. And, and, I mean, it was a, a happy few moments. Um, and then, yeah, she was on active duty at Pendleton. But I was, I, I was about to say I had the great good fortune to talk to the refrigeration engineer on the very voyage that brought her to San Francisco. And he really filled in because that had been sort of a 
a, a, a big blank spot. Um, and legend grows Absolutely. up around something like this, too. And there was a story that, yeah, that, this, that the freighter had hit a typhoon and she was almost washed overboard. And this guy said to me, he said, look, he says, I've got my notes right in front of me. He kept a log of every, every crossing he made. He said it was very... Very pleasant seas, very pleasant crossing. Nothing happened. But he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I, I don't quite know how to say this. I don't want to offend you, but, you know, she, he, she was just a horse for us. Now, this was a freighter that had had um, helped to resupply the Tokyo Zoo after World War II. This, actually, this particular, the SS Pacific Transport, had brought cattle and sheep to Korea and he said, you know, she was just a horse. But he said, you know, he said, let me tell you, Captain Shannon wore the mantle of the, he had the whole wow. fifth Marines on his shoulders. <laughs> she was reckless. You know, she was theirs. So, so this combination, just a horse, but oh no, not really. Okay, you take care of this horse well, and we've got to make sure that Wonderful. it gets to San Francisco. Yes, absolutely. And she apparently was a wonderful, wonderful passenger. And the only thing is anybody that passed that stall should please stop and talk to her. Just say hello. And don't, oh, yes, and, and the business of the cigarettes, yes, they learn very quickly to keep their smokes in their pocket because if they, you know, put them down on the edge of the, on the lip of the stall, they were gone. Well, you've written a, a, a really great story, and I love the historic references to the Korean War. You, you brought a little bit more of understanding of what was going on there and you weaved in the story of reckless and how she played an integral part to a very select and lucky group of marines we all look for that horse and that relationship mm. and it's just a really a really good story guys have said to me that because of reckless and what she did a lot of men came out of korea came home alive that would not have otherwise I think that's pretty powerful, and that says that really says it about what she did and what she meant to them. Janet, where where can folks uh, get your book? The book is on Amazon, so that's certainly the I guess that's the place everyone knows mm -hmm. best. And if they want to support the Marines, it is available through the National Museum of the Marine Corps. Great. And also through the Marine Corps Association and the Marine Corps League. But for a lot of people, Amazon, yes. And for me, she was just an extraordinary experience. I mean, I, I really do feel as if I know this horse. And a lot of people have said that. And also to, to bring the story out for the guys and to get it right. And I'll have to tell you that a lot of Marines have called up and said, yep, that is how it was. And you mentioned the bringing the history and the history of the war and also the history of the Marines in the war. Because, you know, it, it all fit together. I mean, as I, as I said, and I'm repeating myself, but it wasn't just a horse story kind of dropped down in Korea. I mean, it, it needed that context. I mean, it has to do with how the war changed and, you know, the forces that started to, to come into play. And um, it really is a, it's a, it was a fascinating story. And how this this and and the Marines I have there's one Marine in particular will call me up occasionally and he says ours was real, <laughs> and she was she. Was, <laughs> I'm sorry, Steven Spielberg, <laughs> but she was. You know, they never ever said their pony. I, I, I this has always amused me. But but I I had some of those guys say to me, oh she was very small, but they always called her their horse. So as wow. I say, I explained that she was a pony. But I guess to say war pony just wasn't fitting. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So she was their war horse. She was their horse. She was their mare. And mostly, as they say, she was, hey, reckless. You know? <laughs> and it's just great to see that the, the Marines realize how important she was because they put a, camp, yeah. uh, a plaque up outside of Camp Pendleton. But then even many years, even after that, after her passing, they built a statue of her at the was it Marine Headquarters in Virginia? Well, it's at the it's at the National Nash- Museum of the Marine Corps. Yes, you're right. A, a statue of her was dedicated a year ago, a little bit more, in, in the end of July 2013. Um, and and I think what's lovely about it is that they they sculpted her as if she's in motion. She's she's out. It, the statue is outdoors in a glen, and she's in stride. She's got four shells on her back. And it looks like she's climbing those hills, just as if she's back in Korea supplying those guys with, with their ammunition. And I just think that's so, so It's touching. a very moving uh, statue, that's for sure. Yeah. I hope your I hope your listeners like the story. It really is um you know, and we'll and we'll uh get the book and read more. We've I know we've we've told an awful lot about it, but I guess I can just keep She's a part of it. And there's a lot in the book. I mean, I I was fascinated yeah. by it, read it all the way through. And even the, I, I love this, the, the stories that you tell of how she was at, at Camp Pendleton and, and her life after the war. Those are just as much mm-hmm. fun and much as much as part of the book as anything else. And I really want to thank you for uh, joining us on the show today. You are welcome. The world needs another great horse story. And you've done a really good job with this one. I just love that story of Reckless Renee. I do too. It's just wonderful to have a, a war horse story with a happy ending. You know, she survived and she retired with honors in San Diego at Camp Pendleton. She got to live out her life in peace. Mm-hmm. But I can just picture that little pony, you know, with, with shells strapped to her and with guns going all over the place, climbing up that hill to get to to the rest of her herd so that they yeah. she knew she had a job to do. That monument is it at Pendleton with the the three shells strapped on each side on each of her. Side. It's it's incredible. It's, yeah. yeah. She was a workhorse and a warhorse. <laughs> what a great story. And you you know if you're looking for a good book to read, I would recommend They Called Her Reckless by Janet Barrett. You can get it from Amazon and I'll have that link at wolpodcast.com. that will do it for this show. Thanks to Janet for letting us rebroadcast this interview from September of 2014. We talked to a lot of trainers on the show. If you have a question about your horse and want some free advice, you can leave your question on our listener line. It is 661-368-5530. Or you can email john at wopodcast.com. You know, another thing you can do at wopodcast.com, Renee? What's that? You can sign up for our email to stay up to date. Or if you have a suggestion for a guest, a comment, email john at wopodcast.com. Use the Apple Podcast app to subscribe to the Woe Podcast and you will never miss an episode. You can also subscribe on Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. They're all free, and all of them are free at wopodcast.com. The Woe Podcast is produced by John and Renee Hare with occasional research support from Robin Kane and support from you, our listeners. If you would like to support the show, visit wopodcast.com and click on the Patreon button. It's just that easy. 
Thanks again for listening to our podcast and sharing it with your riding buddies. Until next time, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. We don't even want to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See. No, I, yes. We can probably start over. Okay. Okay. Again with the start over? I know. I'm sorry.